Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Since February 24th, the West has been unwilling to acknowledge the NATO provocations that laid the ground for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the group think has only gotten worse. As they pour an endless amount of weapons into Ukraine to bleed the Russians, our leaders are very casually setting us up for a potential nuclear showdown that would be catastrophic for humanity. Anyone who speaks out against this insanity or advocates diplomacy to avoid nuclear Armageddon is labeled a Putin apologist, a Kremlin agent, a Russian propagandist. In the meantime, Europe continues to slit its own throat as sanctions on Russia destroy its economy and cause gas shortages, while European leaders and media demonstrate shocking levels of racism and hypocrisy. To help make sense of it all, I'm joined by Alia Bunima, executive director of the Electronic Intifada and author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine. But before we jump into it, if you appreciate this show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Ali, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure, Rania. It really is like all my pleasure, I should say, to have you on. I always have such a great time uh, chatting with you. Uh, and I feel like it's become a regular thing every couple of months. Like we, we have to discuss all the new developments in the world, whether it's about Palestine or in this case, Ukraine. But you know, right now, I think we're in a really strange and alarming situation because the world is hearing, you know, real serious talk of nuclear retaliation and escalation coming from these high level officials in Washington for, you know, the first time in many years, many decades. Um, and it feels like, you know, the idea of nuclear Armageddon, I mean, it's not likely, but it's more likely and it's it, that makes it a real danger. And these officials just keep like casually mentioning it like it's no big deal. And the argument we keep, you know, getting is that, oh, we have to save the West and we have to save Ukraine. And that might require some sort of like nuclear, you know, strike. Um, but if there were a nuclear attack, there would be no Ukraine left. And furthermore, like the rest of the world would be made unlivable. And we can get into that. But I just want to note a couple of things here before I get your take on this. You know, the former defense secretary and CIA director, Leon Panetta, even was on television recently and cited intelligence analysts who believe the probability of nuclear weapons use in Ukraine has risen from one to one to five percent at the start of the war to 20 to 25 percent today. I don't know who comes up with those calculations and how, but even one percent is disturbing, let alone 25 percent. And then you have Biden calling the prospect of nuclear Armageddon the highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis and on and on and on. I mean, I could go on listing all of the comments that we've been hearing just in the last month that nobody seems to be really taking seriously. But before we get into what a nuclear war would actually look like, what do you make of the way these officials are so cavalierly like walking us into potential nuclear confrontation with their proxy war in Ukraine? Well, it's horrifying. And what I find horrifying about it, Rania, is that... Uh, Yes, Biden used the word Armageddon, but for the most part, people aren't talking about Armageddon. They're talking about um, nuclear weapons as if, you know, it's just some kind of like bigger bomb. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember, you know, I, I grew up in the 1980s when the fear of nuclear Armageddon was real. And uh, it was understood universally that nuclear war meant the end of the world. 
Um, and th the term that we talked about, you know, that, that everyone uh, knew at the time was nuclear winter. That, you know, even if you survived the initial horrifying uh, nuclear holocaust, uh, the world would quickly be enveloped because there would be so much, you know, ash and debris thrown up into the atmosphere. The, the world would cool. It would be um, thrown into a nuclear winter where nothing could survive, where the, the survivors would uh, be, uh, you know, they'd starve to death if they even survived. So it was understood that nuclear war was something to be avoided at all costs because it meant the end of the world. Nobody joked about it. Nobody took risks about it. Um, I think there was a historical proximity. You know, when we're talking about the 80s, it was 40 years ago almost, uh, you know, the mid-80s. Uh, and that was the same distance from today you know, we're the same distance from the mid-80s as we were in the mid-80s from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we were much closer to the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, it was only 20 years or so, 25 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think the consciousness was much higher. And, and what I find as someone who lived in that era, and I, I'm not that old, and, I, you know, it's like these world leaders are a lot of them are older than me, so they ought to know this stuff, that, um, you know, it's not just 12-year-old 12, 12 think tankers that are, you know, it, it's like grown men and women who are talking this way. So I, I'm just utterly horrified by it. The one caveat is that throughout history, the only power that has actually used nuclear weapons, of course, we know is the United States, but it's also the power that has repeatedly contemplated using them again. We know that the U.S. wanted to use them against China. They talked about using them in Korea. And even in the 80s, there was this idea, it was actually an older American idea, of so-called limited nuclear war in Europe. And, the, and it was... As I remember, you know, I, I'm talking about when I was a teenager. So, you know, the historians who watch your show can correct me. But that idea of limited nuclear war and the way American officials or American intellectuals or whatever you want to call them talked about, oh, we could fight a nuclear war that w would be limited to the European continent was part of what drove the massive anti-nuclear movements in Europe. You know, you had these massive uh, movements in Germany, in Britain, uh, the women's movement uh, in uh, the they were called the Greenham Common Women. These were this was a woman-led movement against American nuclear weapons in the UK. You had in Germany the anti-nuclear movement, and this succeeded. It created enough pressure that eventually the U.S. and the Soviet Union signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, which removed these so-called medium-range nuclear missiles from the European continent. And ultimately, through the 80s, the reduction in nuclear weapons, don't get me wrong, there's still thousands of warheads that could destroy the planet dozens of times over, but there was the removal of these sort of 
shorter range weapons that had an even shorter flying time, you mm -hmm. know, that, that the world would be destroyed in three minutes or, or whatever it was. And I feel like all that history and consciousness is gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Vla Vladimir Zelensky to, to, to actually call for preemptive strikes on Russia uh, would have been unthinkable. And we're talking, we're not talking about, you know, uh, peaceniks. We're talking about the Reagan administration, you know, but they, even they did not joke about nuclear war. And there was a notorious incident in 1983 called Abel Archer. This was a NATO exercise uh, that was a, a large-scale NATO exercise. And the Soviet uh, intelligence were picking up the preparations for Abel Archer, and they thought that this was the real thing. They thought that NATO was preparing for a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. And so they were in the position of having to decide whether the Soviet, the Soviet Union should have to strike first. Mm -hmm. And so that, that episode or that incident is less known than the Cuban Missile Crisis, but Abel Archer is, is said to be... There's a new book ab out about Abel Archer that I haven't actually read yet, but from, from uh, my recollection, Abel Archer was one of the impetuses, along with um, it's said... Uh, that the movie The Day After. I don't know if you remember that. You, you're probably too young for that, but I'll get to that in a second. But that was one of the impetuses that pushed Ronald Reagan to, you know, take seriously nu nuclear reduction and even to contemplate the elimination of nuclear weapons. Now, and by the way, there's a really good, I don't know if it's still available, but, but there was a really good, Hulu series uh, a few years ago called Deutschland 83. Mm. I mean, I think it's a German-made series. It's a fictional drama, but it's it's set around the events of Abel Archer, and it actually manages to be really funny. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of dark humor, but it's yeah. it's actually well worth watching. But the other thing I remember from the 80s was this sort of terrible made-for-TV movie called The Day After, uh, and it was shown all over the world. It was shown across the United States. It was shown in Europe. I don't know if it was shown. I can't remember if it was shown in the Soviet Union. That that's something I need to look up. But it was it it was like this TV movie that showed the aftermath of a nuclear war, basically. And um, you know, basically, it's like the end of the world. The few survivors are like scrambling around and in the ruins waiting for their flesh to fall off. And, and I, I mean, the point of the film was to tell people, like, there's no surviving nuclear war. Right. And I remember that that film was, it was terrifying. It was really terrifying because this wasn't just entertainment. It wasn't just like, you know, uh, watching a Halloween movie. This was like what the world was possibly facing unless the course was changed. So for me, for someone of that generation, I, I just can't take talk of nuclear war casually. And, th and that's why I, you know, just I'm horrified by this and I talk about it because it's just, you know, it, it, th that's what we're talking about. And we've already got enough like 
potentially world <laughs> right? things going on at the moment. We don't need this. Yeah, you know, sometimes I wonder if uh, part of the difference, at least in terms of the ability to get people worried about an apocalypse, is there was this like apocalypse genre that was almost overdone the last 20 years. There's like a million movies similar to like the day after, like a zombie apocalypse, a climate change apocalypse, a tsunami apocalypse, a nuclear apocalypse, and on and on and on, that people just don't even, they're like numb to the idea. But just just to reinforce what uh, you're talking about here, I want to show um, some stuff from this article. Just I'll, I'm just showing the headline right now. But it's important because this is a piece in uh, Live Science that basically explains the reality of nuclear war, right? So uh, you have the headline, nuclear winter from a U.S.-Russia conflict would wipe out 63% of the world's population. I'm just going to read a few sentences here uh, because we don't hear this. This is not, the CNN isn't telling you this. Uh, And I don't know why. Well, I do know why. But more than 5 billion people, roughly 63% of the world's current population, would die of famine in the aftermath of a full-scale nuclear war between the U.S., Russia, and their allies. According to the researchers, the conflict would create a, uh, widespread fires that could eject up to 160 million tons of soot into the Earth's atmosphere, leading to crop declines in the food-exporting U.S. and Russia that would send ca- global calorie production plummeting by as much as 90%. Now, the reason I think that this didn't get so much attention, the study that I'm speaking of, is this is this particular part. In a U.S.-Russia nuclear war, more people would die from famine in India and Pakistan alone than in the countries actually fighting the war. So, because when we talk about the aftermath of a nuclear war, it would be, there would be a, what you call the nuclear winter that would lead to basically like no food for anyone. You wouldn't be able to grow food. And I think I think there's a mentality, perhaps, in certain rich countries that maybe they wouldn't be the ones who'd have to deal with the aftermath of that, even though that's not even really true. Um, but I just wanted to note that to reinforce like the how drastic the consequence of this would be. It, but go it, ahead, if you want to add it's, to that, go it's, ahead. It's not. I mean, I hadn't seen this article. In a way, I'm glad to see it. But the point, you know, that was in live science, and you know, it was kind of a marginal thing. But the point I'm making is that at least in the so-called West, the term nuclear winter was as current in the 1980s as the term global warming is now. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the point I'm making. The consciousness of the uh, world-ending consequences of nuclear war was at the top of everyone's mind. You didn't have to go, well, I mean, there were no websites, obviously, then. We had rotary telephones. But you know the point they're making is that that was the that was the common fear and it wasn't like something like you know okay so global warming is bad enough and you know we see the disaster but it's kind of it's a slow motion mm-hmm. calamity the the point about nuclear war is the world is over in 5 minutes you know and the point of miscalculation was the was the really terrifying thing because you know the whole this whole concept of mutually assured destruction that the only way to prevent nuclear war was to convince your adversary that if they launched a strike at you you would launch a strike back at them and everyone would be dead right obviously nobody wants that so so it was like the, the idea was 
that that was the only deterrent. It's like, you're going to kill me, I'm going to kill you too. So the fear was that, you know, if you're the Soviet Union, what if the U.S. launches a first strike at you and destroys your capability to strike back, Yeah. right? So they, they talked a lot about first strike capability and second strike capability. So if... If, you, if you're the U.S. and the Soviet Union hits you first, do you have enough viable missiles left to hit the Soviet Union? And, and do they know that so that they're convinced that they can't do a first strike? Because right. you have to convince your adversary like, okay, you can take out all my cities and destroy all the silo-based ICBMs in the ground, but... I've still got enough submarines wandering under the ocean, and you don't know where they are, that are capable of launching nuclear weapons, and their final order is going to be launch the missiles. So you had to convince your adversary not only that you had the nuclear missiles, that you are willing to use them, but that even if if your adversary hit you first, you would have enough of a capability to hit them back and destroy them. That was the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. And so why this was so sensitive to um, miscalculation as happened, you know, as could have happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as happened with Abel Archer in 1983, was because, well, if you're the Soviet Union and you think that the uh, Americans are about to launch a first strike on you. What do you do? Well, those missiles are going to reach Moscow and every other city in five minutes. Mm-hmm. So you've got five minutes to decide whether you're going to launch your missiles and hit them first. Yeah, This is the world it's that crazy. we lived in. It's, so crazy. it's crazy now, but it, it was the reality. And we got out of it, you know, although the risk of nuclear war never went away. But we're back not just to that, but to like, oh, and it's no big deal. So crazy. And then I just, you know, some of what you just said, I just want to note some of the hypocrisy here with the, with the way that the U.S., the current U.S. administration is looking at this. There's this wild hypocrisy, like for all the fretting over Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons, which I'm not even so sure he actually did that. He never did. And this is important <laughs> because every statement that there was one kind of stupid statement from uh, 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 Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, who is like a million miles away from having control over any nuclear weapons in Russia. But from the from Putin, from uh, the former president Medvedev, who is now the chair of the Security Council, or uh, you know whatever that body is called in in Russia. It was always a restatement of the Russian nuclear doctrine, which is well-known and published, that nuclear weapons, basically the last resort, mutually assured destruction. Like it's if we're attacked with nuclear weapons or the existence of Russia is threatened. That's their doctrine. And they were restating that doctrine in response to some of this careless talk from the West. And you have all these uh, U.S. and Western politicians and media twisting and distorting, you know, treating this like it's 
a congressional primary race where you're, where you're taking, you know, the social media posts of your opponent and twisting them and, right. and right. you know, as, as if it's that level. And I think that, you know, the previous generation, as awful as they were, they were wouldn't have done that because they understood the risk of miscalculation. And I think it's possible that, you know, the Russians understand who they're dealing with, that they're dealing with people who aren't serious and people who are working on this level of this as if this was a local, uh, you know, congressional primary. And that's how they treat truth. You know, that's how they treat treat words. And so, but they did, that's what they were doing. So, you know, there is nowhere where they have suggested that they're going to use nuclear weapons offensively. And on the contrary, this may be, uh, maybe I'm kind of uh, uh, anticipating some of what you want to talk about, but I think that the talk of using tactical nuclear weapons is because some in the West see that as their only way to win the war mm-hmm. in Ukraine against Russia because uh, Russia has such an overwhelming conventional adva- military advantage and Ukraine is uh, really not going to be able to win this war that there are some on the NATO side who fantasize about using so-called tactical nuclear weapons that can just take out whole Russian battalions at one go. But the problem with tactical nuclear weapons, not just that they're nuclear weapons, but that you can't control the escalation. Right. But that's where I think that's coming from, is they want to use it against Russia. So I think some some of this talk is just carelessness and stupidity, but some of it is trying to lay the ground for saying, well, we had to do this because they, otherwise they were going to do it. Well, so there has been changes in the language um, over when nuclear weapons on the Western side and the U.S. side would be used. Like, they basically the idea is that we can u- we might use these nuclear weapons in case of a non-nuclear attack, which might be to to what you're talking about is to justify using them in this case. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, even U.S. officials have said that Ukraine cannot win this war. They can continue to like kill each other for probably years if the U.S. continues to just, like, you know, shower Ukraine with an endless stream of weapons. Of course, well, the war is going to continue, but that's, that's different than winning. Is, yeah, that the problem is that, the, the, you know, it may surprise people, but the, the stream of weapons is not endless. That's one of the issues is that the West has run out of weapons to give Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. I mean, I never thought the West could run out of weapons, but you do see them having to talk. They're constantly talking about, oh, we ha- we can't go into our own stockpile. Like they have an emergency well, well, they, stockpile. They have. I, you know, I, I've, uh, I, I, the past few days I've been reading up on, you know, the, the best place to get this information is from, you know, the, the weapons industry think tanks. Mm-hmm. So, for example, CSIS, the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, Washington War Industry think tank. And the uh, uh, RUSI, the the Royal United Services Institute, which is the British equivalent, and RUSI is funded by the EU, the State Department, uh, you know, all the big weapons manufacturers and so on. And they put out these studies over the past few months. I mean, CSIS has a paper that came out in September that said, 
that um, the Pentagon has gone into its stocks and given um, Ukraine $10 billion worth of U.S. stocks. And this is artillery shells, uh, you know, missiles, uh, anti-aircraft stuff, the HIMARS, uh, you know, all this ammunition and stuff. And this CSIS study says it will take the years years for the United States to replace this. This isn't something where you can switch the production on and off. Uh, and the U.S. hasn't been making a lot of this stuff for many years because the U.S. didn't think that it was going to fight a uh, a huge land-based, grinding, conventional war. All of their doctrine was, oh, it's all about nimble, uh, mobile forces, counterinsurgency forces, uh, you know, counterinsurgency like in, in Afghanistan, a war which, by the way, the United States lost. Um, and you remember uh, back in 2003, you, you may not remember, actually, uh, but I, I do remember, um, <laughs> There was all this controversy, uh, or like a mini controversy, on the eve of the invasion of Iraq, uh, when Donald Rumsfeld was the defense secretary, and there was some criticism that the force, the U.S. land forces he was sending in, were too small. That it was it was going to be something like a hundred thousand troops to go in and occupy Iraq, whereas uh, a, a decade or so earlier when the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq and uh, liberated Kuwait from Iraqi forces the first time in 1991, the U.S. assembled half a million, for, half a million troops yeah. in the Arabian Peninsula. So, you know, a decade, a little bit more than a decade later, there was like, wait, what? You're only going to do this with 100,000 troops yeah. instead of half a million? And... Rumsfeld was, oh, well, you know, this is all about, you know, we're, it's modern warfare. You know, it's all about smart bombs and technology and, smart you know, <laughs> exactly. So you don't, you just don't need the same type of massive forces that you did even 10 years ago. And so what they've discovered now is that you're, if you're fighting a, a grinding conventional land war that is about tanks and artillery and you know there were there are estimates that um, I read one estimate. I think this was in CSIS or in or Russia, one of these papers that you know the the Russians were firing uh, something like thirty thousand artillery shells a day, it's and wild. the Ukrainians were firing five thousand a day. You know a fraction of what Russia was firing, but the United States produces. In a month, 5,000 artillery shells. Yeah, you can't keep up with that. That's unsustainable. You can't keep up with that. The, the Ukrainians are basically firing uh, in, in a day what the U.S. produces in a month, and it's still a fraction of what the Russians are firing. And then this is across the board. So uh, the, 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 the artillery shells, the 155-millimeter artillery shells, the HIMARS rockets, these famous... Uh, uh, you know, uh, high-tech U.S. guided rockets. Apparently, this, the stocks of the... And these are expensive things, you know? They're like, right. I don't know, they cost millions of dollars per rocket. And the U.S. only had a few hundred rockets. 
and they're gone, basically, or they're down to what they're not willing to give up. So now apparently they've ordered, I think the system is made by Lockheed, they've ordered like some ridiculous number of them. But, you know, they're, they're not something you can turn out in a week or a month. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is that uh, the um, the Ukrainians, that's a former Soviet army. So all their weaponry is, you know, uh, Soviet standard weaponry, basically the same weaponry as Russia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about the basic stuff like artillery and tanks and, and the basic um, anti-aircraft systems and that kind of stuff... And obviously, Russia is not going to sell weapons to Ukraine when it's fighting a war against Ukraine. So the U.S. had to go to the arsenals of the former Soviet allies, the former Warsaw Pact countries like Poland and Slovakia and, you know, a few of the others. Apparently, Hungary has refused to give its weapons to Ukraine, but Poland has, and get all the Soviet tanks you know, the former Soviet tanks, and give them to Ukraine. Now, apparently, they don't have them. The same with the aircraft, the MiG aircraft and the Sukhoi aircraft and so on. Uh, And so what do you do? If you're the Ukrainian military, well, the Ukrainians are out there begging on Twitter and saying, we want US M1A1, you know, the, the Abrams tanks. We want the German Leopard tanks. The problem is, you know, Driving a tank. I've never driven a tank. I, I mean, this is something I... <laughs> Breaking I, news. <laughs> yeah. But you learned it here on Dispatches. <laughs> this is the kind of... St- like, this, the stuff I used to read about as a teenager is finally, like, paying off. <laughs> you know, I, I used to read these books about World War II and about armaments and, and this kind of thing. You, you know, when you're a teenage boy, sometimes, you know, thank goodness I'm not <laughs> interested in that anymore, but... Like, it's you know, true. I didn't think, yeah. oh, yeah, in, 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 uh, in 30 years of time, I'm going to be on something called YouTube and this knowledge is going to come in handy. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, those weapons are gone now. And, and, you know, driving a tank is not like driving a rental car. You know, you can land at any airport and get in a rental car. And it doesn't really matter what brand of car it is. You know how to drive it. You know, right. you, you, you just look around. You need months of training, minimum. And you can't just in the middle of a war suddenly turn the Ukrainian uh, army from a Soviet standard army into a NATO army, even though they had been doing that since 2014. It's right. not, it wasn't like a complete transformation. So the West is out of weapons. And this is, you know something you can learn from open sources, you know, to basically the news media, you know, like open source is what they they say to make it sound fancy. But it's like, it's, it's, it's openly said that the stocks are, are gone. Ukraine is out of weapons. Uh, there's, and, and there's no sign that Russia is even close to being out of weapons. Right. Uh, you know, th- there's this, constant fantasy they've been saying since March about, uh, oh, Russia's uh, out of missiles. Russia's running out of missiles. Russia's running out. Of- since March, the story appears, 
literally almost every day in the Western media. Today in Politico.eu, the European version of Politico, there's a story that Russia is running out of missiles. There was one like two days ago in some other publication. I've forgotten now. I think it was the New York Times or the Washington Post. There's no evidence that Russia is running out of missiles. This is wishful thinking. And the point is this wishful thinking has become the only strategy to win the war because it's like Ukraine doesn't have enough weapons. NATO doesn't have enough weapons. doesn't matter how much money you allocate for weapons if the weapons aren't there, and it's going to take you months if you are just – it would take months if you – go into kind of like a World War II-style transformation of your economy into a war economy. But nobody's doing that. Europe's not doing that. They can't even keep the lights on, and they can't even keep the heat on. Where are they going to turn their economies into a war economy to churn out artillery and tanks for Ukraine? They're not doing that. They're talking about, oh, yeah, we need to do this in the distant future. They're not talking about doing it now. Russia is, there's no sign Russia is running out. So what, what's NATO's strategy? It's let's hope Russia runs out of missiles and let's hope there's some kind of coup in Moscow. Literally. And let's write fan fiction about that and publish it every day in Politico and the New York Times and the Washington Post. So all of this is to say, Rania, that any sane and rational person would say, this war is lost for Ukraine. That's not a, 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 a conclusion I'm sure that supporters of Ukraine like to hear. But, uh, you know, we, we said this back in February, this whole war. I mean, we got some things wrong for sure. But one thing we got right is that this didn't start in February 2022. It started in 2014, if not mm-hmm. before. And the right thing to do before February, the right thing to do in February, and the right thing to do now is to negotiate an end to this horrible war, which is only going to kill more people, has already killed tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, and which is, you know, just think of the hubris when this started back in February, the euphoria on the side of the so-called Western leaders in Europe. We're going to win this war. This is finally our chance to smash Russia. We've been preparing the Ukrainians since 2014 to be our fist that is going Mm -hmm. to smash Russia in the face. And we're behind them. And we're going to uh, implement our sanctions, which are going to turn the ruble into rubble and bring... (laughs) the Russian economy to its knees. And it just hasn't worked out that way. It is Europe that is on its knees. It's the US that is following not too far behind. And in the meantime, these psychopaths in Brussels and Washington insist they want to keep fighting until until the last Ukrainian is dead. Until they take us to possibly nuclear Armageddon. And there's that too as an added bonus we might like destroy the world too. <laughs> it's yeah, it's completely insane. And I want to, I do want to get back to the fact that Europe is in fact on its knees and the ways it's happening. But first I would be remiss if I didn't ask you 
to comment on a video that you actually have been comment commenting quite a bit on um, on Twitter. Um, this, of course, is the comments that were made. I'm referring to the comments that were made by Joseph Burrell, who's basically like the foreign minister of the EU. Um, and he was speaking, I think this was last week, and this is what he said about European countries versus the rest of the world. Europe is a garden. We have built a garden. Everything works. It's the best combination of uh, political freedom, economic prosperity, and social cohesion that the humankind has been able to build. There's three things together. The, the rest of the world, and you know very well, Federica, is not exactly a garden. <laughs> The rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, is a jungle. And the jungle could invade the garden. And the gardeners should take care of it, should take care of the garden, but they will not protect the garden by, by walls, by building walls. A nice small garden surrounded by high walls in order to prevent the jungle coming in it's not going to be a solution because the, the jungle has a strong growth capacity and the world will never be high enough in order to protect the garden. The gardeners have to go to the jungle. The Europeans have to be much more engaged with the rest of the world. Otherwise, the rest of the world will invade us. I mean, wow. Like, so, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that. It's actually really shocking rhetoric. I mean, I was under the impression, Ali, that the Nazis lost in Europe after World War II. Um, and that was really like Nazi rhetoric. Uh, what, what, was your, what was your reaction? What is your reaction to these words by Joseph Burrell, who I should also state issued this very bizarre attempt at a, at a non-apology apology? Um, which you called out as being exactly that, uh, uh, not not an apology. Uh, but what was your reaction to his statement? Well, the first thing it reminded me of immediately is was the words of Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister a few years ago. Back in Barak was the prime minister in the 90s, a real war criminal, a real butcher of Palestinians uh, and Lebanese uh, people. Uh, and at, at one point, he called Israel a villa in the jungle. And th at that time, that would just seemed like, uh, you know, the Israelis will say the things that nobody else will say openly, right. you yeah. know. And now, the almost verbatim, Burrell, who, remember, is supposedly a socialist, a Spanish socialist. So this is, this is your left or center-left in Europe, is talking in these, people have been calling it neo-colonialist, but there's nothing neo about it. You know, it's old-fashioned, racist colonialism, white man's burden stuff, that we civilized Europeans have to go out and tame the jungle, bring civilization to them, lest they come and pollute us and overtake and uh, you know invade us and it's also it's got a huge dose of great replacement theory mm. in it as well which is supposedly you know a far right theory but here it is coming from the mouth of the foreign minister of the European Union an alleged socialist and it's quite rightly uh provoked uh, a huge backlash uh globally 
and disgust, you know. But to me, it's like there's nothing. This this has always been the truth of the European Union and Europe more generally. But it was, you know, as they call it, a mask off moment. And for that, I'm very grateful for it because I think the European Union skated by for a long time as this kind of kinder, gentler. Uh, idea, you know, oh, there's the big bad Americans, but then there's the lovely Europeans, you know, and they, they, they've they always been, you know, just kind of like the velvet glove on the fist of the American empire, or really maybe the sweat sock on the boot of the American <laughs> empire, I think is a better uh, metaphor for the Europeans. And uh, it's also striking that, you know, he talks about Europe in these terms. He says, you know, it's the greatest combination of what was it? Political freedom, prosperity, institutions, everything works. You know, maybe there was a time since World War II when you could say that was true. That's leaving aside the fact that you, how did Europe get rich? It got rich right. by plunder and genocide and you know when you go if you go on vacation in europe and see all, all their lovely cathedrals and lovely museums and lovely uh, you know it, it, you know all the gold of spain and portugal that was plundered from uh, uh, the americas and you know the splendors of england that come from imperial plunder and so on i mean even leaving that aside okay there was certainly a time when you know there was sp- stability plenty, prosperity, even that post-war stability and plenty was built on the cheap labor of people from the former colonies. You know, in, in Britain, it was people from the, from, uh, uh, from the Caribbean, uh, people from, um, you know, South Asia, from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, on continental Europe. It, it was uh, people from, uh, you know, in Germany, Turkey, in France, Algeria and Morocco, in Belgium and the Netherlands, Alde- Algeria and Morocco and other countries and so on, Zaire. Um, and then, of course, within Europe, uh, remember, they didn't always treat each other as white people. You know, we, we understand that, you know, whiteness is a, is a concept. It's not a biological reality. So even within Europe, there were these exploitive relationships of, uh, you know, the North uh, exploiting people from the South, from Spain, from Portugal, from Italy. That's the reality of Europe. But let's take him at his word that there was a period of time, you know, in recent history, in the previous few decades, when it was prosperous and there was political uh, stability and working institutions and prosperity and so on. Look at Europe today. Where is the political freedom? There is more censorship in Europe than practically anywhere in the world. I don't think I could go to any country in Europe now, practically, and give a um, a public lecture on Palestine without it being canceled yeah. or without the venue being denied. We've seen that so many times now in France, in Germany. There's no freedom of speech there in, in Germany or France. Uh, there's... Uh, no political diversity. We've gotten to the point, you know, if you think back to, 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 the, to the period before 2003, before the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, it was in Europe that you heard a lot of the dissent 
you know, even from, you know, France and Germany, you know, you had leaders who were prepared to publicly differ with the United States. Mm -hmm. You had political parties, you had mass marches, millions of people coming out against uh, the, the, the war. In Europe now, there is less political diversity and dissent than in the United States. That's shocking to me yeah. that, that Europe is more stifled and more uniform and there's more McCarthyism there than there is in, um, in, uh, than in the United States. Look at Germany. Germany is not a sovereign country, if it ever was. I mean, None of them are. Well, I'm glad None you mentioned that because really, yeah. You know, but but we hope, look, Rania, as people of the jungle, <laughs> right. we hope to see the backwards people of the garden develop, <laughs> all right? Yeah. So Germany was defeated after the awful things that it did, you know, during World War II, uh, and it was occupied by the United States. It wasn't a sovereign country. But I would have liked to see the Germans develop by now, by 2022. I would have liked to see them develop to the point where they were capable of independence and sovereignty. Uh, sadly, that clearly hasn't happened. Yeah, they're very good at some things. They're good at making cars and machine tools and all of that. They clearly have those kinds of skills. They're also good at making the kind of chemical weapons that they gave to Iraq in the 1980s to use against Iran. So Germany clearly has a lot of uh, skills, but uh, political independence isn't one of them. And I, I, that's very sad for me as, as one of the jungle people hoping to have seen the Germans develop and grow to the point where they could govern themselves. But look what happened. It's obvious. I mean, unless you're just completely head in the clouds, I'm trying not to use rude words on a family show. Uh, that, <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> that. The United States or one of its proxies bombed Nord Stream, the pipeline that is Germany's most important energy infrastructure project, crucial infrastructure for the German economy. It's obvious that the United States or one of its proxies, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard speculation about Poland or the British SAS or whatever, but it, it that they're the, they're the people who, you know, it was the United States who said they would do it. You know, it wasn't just Biden's senior moment when he said, we'll, we'll take out Nord Stream, because we have Victoria Newland who also said it yep. clearly that, you know, we will bring Nord Stream to an end. So they have the intention, they have the motive, they have the capability. And then we had Blinken come out afterwards, the Secretary of State, and say, oh, oh, this is a great opportunity. <laughs> he said it like three or four times, by the way, in the course of like a minute right. and 50 seconds. So yeah. let's assume that the thing that is most likely that the United States did it or one of its proxies did it with U.S. help and support. What does that mean? It means that the United States attacked Germany. Yeah. It attacked. It, it carried out a military attack against its supposed ally. Okay? Mm -hmm. Nobody in Germany, you know, no mainstream politician no mainstream media is talking about this. The Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, is silent about it. Your country has just been attacked. Its biggest infrastructure project has been attacked. They're talking about shutting down 40% of German car production this mm -hmm. winter. I read a study 
uh, a report the other day, uh, it's one of these you know financial forecasting firms, it said 40% of German automobile production could shut down in the next few months because of the energy crisis. We're talking about you know, deindustrialization of Germany, which is a process that's not reversible. No, now, and it's, that, it's, it's, it's so interesting that like the German capitalist class, like the industry leaders are really not doing anything to push back against it, which shows you that level of like lack of t- sovereignty. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And, and it's, it's, so Europe is self-destructing for what? To fight a proxy war against Russia that is motivated by this Cold War ideology. I want to say these ancient hatreds because, <laughs> you know, what are they supporting? They're supporting this like 1930s, 1940s ideology in Ukraine that glorifies, still glorifies Stepan Bandera, the, the, the Hitler accomplice who helped commit genocide against Jews and Poles. That's, that's what they're fighting for. That's their European values that they're prepared to destroy their economy for, freeze people to death in the winter. And, Ali, and- Ali, I want to just note, just to reinforce what you're saying, uh, the UK's, which I still consider the UK being part of Europe, even though they are not a yeah, part of, of the European Union, but of course they're Europe. The UK's national grid has warned that British households must prepare for blackouts between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. on really, really cold weekdays in January and February. And the BBC has prepared these like secret scripts that could be read on air if energy shortages cause blackouts or loss of gas supplies this winter. So it, 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 the word self-destruction is like the perfect way to describe it, but please continue. But And for what, though? But for the question mm-hmm. is, for what? You know, none of this was necessary. I mean, you know, we're, we're not allowed to remember history. We're not allowed to think before like yesterday. But we yeah. know the story. We talked about it back in February or, or, or March when we... You know, we, we, I think we did our first discussion on Ukraine mm-hmm. that the Sorry. history here is that at the end of the Cold War, you know, 1990, the agreement was no expansion of NATO, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they kept expanding NATO and Russia was very clear all along. You know, they, they accepted, they rolled over for NATO expansion right up to their borders, basically in the Baltic republics. But they said Ukraine is a red line. There is absolutely no way. And when the U.S. supported the coup in 2014, the neo-Nazi coup in Ukraine, now remember, Crimea, even though it was part of Ukraine since the 1950s or whenever it was that Khrushchev transferred it to, to Ukraine, and they were all part of the Soviet Union at that time, so it didn't really matter. It's like, it would be like, you transfer the UP, the Upper Peninsula, from Michigan right. to Wisconsin, right. basically. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that's that's kind of what it was. Uh, I know there'd be, like, UP people who'd be really <laughs> mad at me for saying it, but I'm just trying to give some, some kind of context here. Uh, I mean, obviously, the history of Crimea is, is very different. But th- the point is that even though Crimea was part of Ukraine, the, uh, the the Russian Black Sea Fleet remained in uh, Sevastopol. So it remained based in Crimea, even though it was part of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so in 2014, the Russians see a hostile uh, 
American-backed neo-Nazi regime take over in Kiev, neo-Nazi-supported regime. I don't want to say, you know, the whole character of the government was, but the, the neo-Nazis were the vanguard, you know, the Azovs and the IDAs and the C-14s and all those people were the, were the vanguard of the uh, American-backed coup. And now, you know, Crimea is is basically, you know, you have the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which is from Russia's perspective, crucial to its security, basically surrounded by a hostile Ukraine. And the the Russian demand was always that Ukraine remain neutral. And there was nothing wrong with that demand. And, th- and that would have been good for everyone, especially Ukraine. And so what exactly? There, w- there was, an, and, and for the people in Donbass, the, the largely... Russian-speaking and ethnic Russian people of Donbass who didn't want to be dominated by Russian-hating, uh, you know, ideologues, uh, pro-Nazi ideologues who think they're descended from Vikings. You know, I mean, you could you could have come up with a political solution for that. And let me be very clear: I'm not saying that all people that this represents all people in Ukraine outside Donbass. Not at all. This. I'm talking about the the people, the fanatics who the U.S. allied with and who they put in power in Kiev and who yeah. took Ukraine down this path of, of uh, destruction. And instead of putting a stop to it, they, they, there's, you know, a, a, a lost cause, uh, essentially. They're, they're going on with it. And it, it seems no, to me they're that they're also that, sabotaging diplomacy. Like they're going out of their way abs- to make sure absolutely, it continues. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and Russia and, and time, at least for the foreseeable future is not on Ukraine's side. It's on Russia's side because Russia can fight, a def- you know, they can fight a defensive war. They can just sit there with their massive artillery uh, advantage and armor advantage and, and total air superiority and any attempt at a Ukrainian counteroffensive, they can just smash it from the air and with artillery, which is what they've been doing, despite the kind of like um, overhyped claims of Russia retake uh, of Ukraine, you know, retaking vast areas of land. They took basically, you know, empty land that was of little strategic value. The Russians were able to withdraw to. Uh, highly defensible lines, and they can wait until they want to mount another offensive. But actually, Russia has been sending signals that they're still open to di- d- diplomacy. They're mm-hmm. still open to talking. It's the U.S. And, that is sabotaged. The U.S. that refuses. They don't want talks. They just they want to bleed want the talks. Russians. It's like the one pol- like one track mind policy goal no matter what it's, and it's a, it's a tragedy rania that the people of the garden mm. just cannot get on with each <laughs> other and just cannot cannot <laughs> see sense and i get like you know a lot of kind of pushback on uh, on uh, you know, social media, because I will say some of these things. Oh, oh, you're you're Palestinian. You surely understand resistance. You surely understand, you know, people people are fighting for their rights. They're fighting for their country. I understand that. Of course I do. But you've never seen me say, you know, when Israel is bombarding Gaza and the Palestinian resistance is fighting back with everything they've got, you know, with their, with their uh, you know, homemade 
rockets with real ingenuity, you know, but still outmatched a thousand to one by uh, uh, by Israel. I, I never say, and no, no sensible person would say, oh, the Palestinians have to keep firing and keep firing, keep firing until, uh, until uh, you know, the last rocket, until the last Palestinian has been killed. We never say that. We say no. the resistance should use its capabilities as much as possible to deter Israel and to bring Israel to a ceasefire that will save as many lives as possible. You never say, oh, and, and nobody says, oh, like right now, I, I would never say Hamas or the resistance in Gaza should launch a first strike against Israel because they got to use every weapon they have against Israel. Nobody says that. Nobody right. says that. Right. So hey, I just, no, 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 I'm glad you're making this comparison because I did want to, I did want to make this point while I have you on. Um you have all of these like uh, U.S. officials, you know, I'm going to show this tweet real quick by Linda Thomas Greenfield. Um, you may have actually uh, responded to it. A lot of people did. And it de- and it deserved it. Not because like, you know, maybe not because, you know, I'm trying to say these places are, in fact, not Ukraine or are. It's not really up to me. But she's saying in this tweet, like all of these areas that uh that Russia is like occupying or is in and held these votes to become a part of Russia are actually in fact still Ukraine. Um, and okay, fine. That's fine. If you want to say that, how, you know, I also don't like really think it's right to, you know, have people voting on referendums when they're, when there's actually like a military occupation. Like I think Russia could have gone about that in other ways, but I'm not here to like, to talk about that particular issue. Uh, what I want to note is that I, I want to bring it to Palestine for a moment. I don't I don't think you're gonna be surprised about this, Ali. I'm just as I'm just gonna keep talking as I try to bring this up on the screen. Um, but basically, like th- this is not from that long ago. Same administration. I'm not even showing you the Trump administration here. I'm showing you the Biden administration. I'm gonna show you this video by Anthony Blinken. You'll be very familiar with it. Let's see what Anthony Blinken has to say about annexation. The Trump administration, as you know, also recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Israel captured from Syria back in 1967. Uh, Will your administration, the Biden administration, continue to see the Golan Heights as part of Israel? Look, leaving aside the legalities uh, of that that question, as a practical matter, uh, the the Golan is very important to uh, Israel's uh, security as long as Assad is in power in Syria, as long as uh, Iran is present. So putting aside the legalities, I, I mean that. So sorry, that I shout out to Eugene and, and Brian on the socialist program that I just uh, stole that clip from them. But Ali, in the context of the rhetoric we're seeing around Ukraine, I mean, you and I, I feel like every time I, that we've talked this year, we've we've mentioned this, but it's worth mentioning so many times the blatant double standards and hypocrisy. Because on the one hand, you have all this rhetoric from Western officials because it behooves them to suddenly care about sovereignty, whatever that means. It's very selective in Ukraine uh, about sovereignty, about autonomy over territory and against, you know, annexation. And then you get to the issue of Palestine. And, uh, you know, you literally run a outlet, an outlet that covers the issue of Palestine, the Israeli occupation of Palestine, Israel's atrocities against Palestine, which are completely, you know, the guarantor of all those atrocities is the U.S. So when you see this rhetoric, I mean, what, like, 
it must be so aggravating. And I know it's aggravating for me. I mean, it is aggravating, but it's like, it's the rules-based international order. What are you going to do? It's like, we make the rules, we give the orders. That's, you know, and it's like, it's not just, you know, what Blinken said is like setting aside the legalities, you know, Israel, you know, as long as Assad is in power, as long as there are Iran-backed groups in uh, uh, Syria, then Israel is going to keep it, basically. And of course, others had made the point, they'd kind of taken Blinken's uh, words and kind of just crossed out, uh, you know, Syria and Assad and and said, you know, uh, when it comes to Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk and the other territories, well, as long as Zelensky is in power, as long as there are neo-Nazi-backed groups in Ukraine, as long as, uh, you know, the U.S. is standing behind them, then uh, Russia is going to consider these territories vital for its security. Exactly the same logic applies. And, um, you know, we've seen in recent days that uh, Russia has been carrying out uh, attacks on uh, Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Zelensky tweeted the other day that uh, 30% of the energy infrastructure had been knocked out and it's causing blackouts in part of Ukraine, uh, which is absolutely horrible for civilians, particularly as uh, winter rapidly approaches. Um, And, you know, all the outrage from that, we saw, oh, this is attacks on civilians and this is, you know, outrageous. And it may well be, you know, uh, but this is a a standard American tactic. You know, the first thing they did in 1991 when they launched the war against Iraq was completely destroy Iraq's energy infrastructure, water infrastructure, sewage, bridges, roads, destroyed everything. In Yugoslavia in 1999... They bombed, NATO bombed the power plants uh, in Yugoslavia, put Belgrade into darkness and other cities. Israel has done it countless times to Lebanon. It's the Israeli military doctrine. It's called the Dahia doctrine because Israel can't defeat Hezbollah, the main resistance group militarily. They go after the civilian target. So, you know, how many times they've knocked out the power plants in Lebanon? They did the same in Gaza repeatedly in 2006, uh, in 2014. So these are standard, standard Western NATO tactics. Uh, and you, and the difference is that if it was the United States, they would have done it from day one, uh-huh. and they would have done it much harder and faster and more completely. They would have knocked every light in Ukraine out. Yes. So... You know, you we understand that this is all about power, and power in the world is shifting. Uh, and you know, a lot of people talk about multipolarity as maybe a more favorable situation because there, you know, maybe these powers will deter each other from doing these things. I don't know. That's that's maybe too much to hope for. Back <laughs> during the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States avoided a direct nuclear confrontation, but there were vicious proxy wars around the world that, right. that, that, you know, millions of, of people, people m- millions of people died in, you know, the U S invasion of Vietnam, Korea uh, <laughs> and, and, and Korea and the, the destruction, of Cambodia and Laos. I mean, it's not fashionable to say it, 
But, you know, the Soviet Union was on the right side of almost every conflict. <laughs> they were on the side of the anti-colonial liberation movements in Africa and around the world. So was East Germany. You could say, oh, well, they did it for their geopolitical reasons. That may well be true. Doesn't change the fact well, I mean, the that US they were on the U.S. supported fascists around the world for its geopolitical ambitions. So, I mean, yeah. Sure, but <laughs> doesn't change the fact that, you know, they were on the side of Nelson Mandela, not on the side of the white supremacists. Yes. That yeah. doesn't, you know, that that's an inescapable fact that you can't just say, oh, well, they weren't sincere. Doesn't matter. They were on the right side. Yeah. And speaking to, this is uh, one of the last things I want to ask you about, but there's this mentality in U.S. official discourse about, oh, like now that we're taking on Russia, like we shouldn't be just focused on Russia. We should also be taking on uh, China and Iran at the same time. There's literally an article that just came out a couple days ago. This is the headline. Can the U.S. take on China, Iran and Russia all at once? It's not the first of its kind. I keep seeing this. There was one in the in the Washington Post uh, a couple of months ago by Josh Rogan, who's like their resident neocon, um, saying something along the same lines. Like, oh, it wasn't even a question he was asking. He was actually making a declarative statement about, yes, the U.S. can take on Russia and China at the same time. So I, on the one hand, you do have what I think looks a lot like some sort of decline of the Western powers because of the U.S. overextending itself, domestic issues in the U.S., the rise of other powerful countries that's taking place. At the same time, throughout all this, even though people in the U.S. are aware that there's some sort of decline taking place, there's still this bizarre level of arrogance and superiority that we can just take on multiple nuclear armed powers at the same exact time. Let's provoke a war with China over Taiwan. I mean, it's just insanity. To, to what do you attribute this mentality that we, that the United States, I don't want to say we, like I'm making these decisions, that the United States can take on all of these countries at the same time when we have like, like 70,000 bridges on the verge of collapsing inside America. Uh, and, you know, I don't even know what the economy is going to look like in another 10 or 20 years, but it's not looking good. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, that's, that's a tough question. You know, they're, they're all, I mean, before we get to that, it's like, you know, I don't claim to be a world expert in, in uh, economics or history of every part of the world, but I just look at the basics. And that's, that's you know, and I, I also don't claim that I'm, I, I've always been right about everything, but I just look at the basics of this situation. Russia is the world's biggest country by landmass, not by population. It has massive natural resources. Everything. I mean, it's got limitless oil, limitless gas. It's got, you know, all the other raw commodities that the rest of the world needs. It is the world's number one wheat producer. I mean, along with Ukraine, they're like number one and number two. Um, it, um, and it has a for formidable military, which we're seeing uh, now in Ukraine, unfortunately, because this war is absolutely horrible, but it's also fighting what it sees in the, as an exist, existential war that it can't afford to lose. Then you have China, which is the world's most populous country. It has uh, 
huge manufacturing and technological capability. Uh, it is the, you know, they used to call Great Britain the workshop of the world. Today, China is the workshop of the world. You go to the stores in any country and, you know, almost anything you pick up is made in China. Uh, and China can see what the the West has done with Russia and Ukraine, and they can see the same patterns of behavior, of provocation with respect to Taiwan, with respect to Xinjiang, and they know that if Russia fails, they will be next. So China cannot afford to let Russia lose and will not. So Russia has vast resources and it has China, which has vast resources as its strategic depth. These are countries that either have or produce everything they need. Mm-hmm. What about the United States? It's been completely de- deindustrialized. Yeah. Okay. It still has industry, but it's been largely deindustrialized. What about Europe? What does Europe produce? Okay. They produce nice sausages. And they and they and you can go there and you can have a lovely five course meal and you know you, you know all that and they and they make you know luxury leather goods. Oh, but what else does Europe produce? You can't eat luxury leather goods. You, you can't, can't fuel your car. I mean, yeah. The 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 industrial heart of Europe is Germany. Okay, and they're in the process. Germany is a formidable exporting. Power. They produce, you know, the world's best machine tools and cars and, you know, all this sort of thing. But they're in the process of deindustrializing it rapidly. Yeah. Okay. The, the U.S. bombed the guarantee of Germany's competitiveness, which was the supply of uh, relatively cheap gas from Russia. So if you look at this kind of in the, the long term, maybe I'm being naive. You know, Russia and China can do without little Europe, which I've started to call far West Asia. You know, it's like... (laughs) That's actually a really... That's accurate. That's an accurate description. Yeah. Chinese people and Russian people love to go on vacation in Europe. You know, you you go to any European capital in the summer Mm -hmm. and there's Chinese tourists and Russian tourists. At least I haven't been there for a few years, but this was... There were. You know, when I was last there. But they'll find other places to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what really do, do China and Russia need from Europe? And I think that's what the Russians realized because post-Cold War, they had this love affair with Europe and they're like, we want to be part of the club and we want to be normalized. And we, right. But they realized it's like, these people think they're Vikings and that <laughs> the Slavs are not as good as them. <laughs> and, the, and the Russians are finally getting that message. You know, it's like, okay. So, you know, they're building, they're building, you know, this sort of uh, eastward looking alliance that, you know, the, the, the heart of it is going to, you know, as France and Germany are once the heart of the EU, you know, the engine yeah. of the, the, the little diminishing EU, China and, and Russia look like they're going to be sort of the heart of this, this new global uh, you know, formation or alliance that other countries are going to, to, to flock towards because 
you know, it's also, it's like you can trade with them. They're not going to sanction the the hell out of you. They're not going to freeze all your right. assets. They're not, you know, and that, that's the other thing is like, you know, you trade with the, you know, the U.S. is you put your assets in the United States. They're going to sanction the heck out of you. They're going to confiscate everything. They're going to, they're going to sanction all your official, you know, it's like, it's too risky yeah. to do business with the so-called West because they're going to punish you if you don't abide by their every word. (laughs) Exactly. So I don't know. So, so when you look to go back to Burrell and his comments, it's like about, Oh, we're the garden and everything is lovely in the garden out there is a jungle. I mean, it could be, this is just a theory that these people are so steeped in their um, supremacist ideology and the notion that they really are the best, finest, cleverest, smartest people in the world, and that they can do no wrong, even though in his fake non-apology, uh, you know, Perel did say, "Oh well, we're not always we're not always a hundred percent perfect." You know, we sometimes we we're, we're a little, even, but you know, nobody's even gods, perfect. even gods like us, Ex- exactly. Mistakes. And I think that the ideology of America, so-called American exceptionalism that I know you've talked about and, and just the, the, the kind of, um, the enforced ignorance of Americans, not, not because Americans aren't capable of of being as smart as everyone else, of course they can. But you know the disinvestment in in public education, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 cheapening of public discourse to the level of you know where everything is just you know the the most stupid childish culture war bullshit doesn't produce societies. You know the state of so called European. You know I mean. The, the idea of Europe that they still have is, oh, we've got all these smart people sitting around in, in cafes smoking gitans and writing, <laughs> you know, uh, philosophical treatises that are so clever. Where is this European intelligentsia? Where are, where are they? Where, where, where are the people? Where are the great dissenters? You know, <laughs> where are the European Noam Chomskys and Edward Saeeds? And, and, you know, to, you could name many other people who, who today – where are they? They don't, I don't hear them. I was so, just hoping it was a language barrier, but yeah, I don't think no, that's the problem. It's not, it's not a language barrier. The, the, so I have a very bleak uh, view of, of uh, where Europe is heading. And, and you know, that's the choice. I don't want to say that's the choice they've made because there is no democracy in no, Europe. I mean, the EU is, is anti-democratic. You had that fantastic program a few months ago with, um, I forget the name of the Mapa Vistas. Yes, yeah, the and the former. Uh, yeah, I actually after after, uh, after watching your episode, you should link it in the sure. Link yeah, it's it a good down idea. below. But um, I actually bought his book after watching ah. that show. I didn't. Re- I haven't read it. It's on my desk <laughs> with the pile of other books I bought after watching uh, uh, great discussions. But you know that there is Europe is not. A, you know the EU is not a democracy, mm-hmm. and these countries increasingly are not democracies. They are, at, like Germany, the biggest, most powerful country is basically an American puppet regime. Yeah. But let's just hope they don't drag the the garden as it sinks into the swamp. Doesn't <laughs> drag the jungle down any more than it already has over the last five centuries. 
<laughs> that was very well put. Uh, I hope anybody inside the garden is watching and, and receives that message. Are they, are they allowed uh, to? Are they allowed to? Watch I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think we're banned in Europe, but who freaking knows? We're maybe banned by <laughs> algorithm. Um, but Ali, I really want to thank you for coming on. And I always like love and appreciate everything that you have to say. I always learned so much hearing hearing your your takes on all of these things. Can you remind everybody? where they can follow and support your work. Yeah, and all I'll say is, you know, I have a lot of fun when they come on your show. I just, I just had a great time. <laughs> I thought we were sitting around just like, you know, it's like we were sitting around in a lovely European cafe <laughs> having a chat. So I so I had a good time, but I, I hope that that was actually useful for people. Yes. But I, I, I appreciate appreciate that. And uh, you can uh, find me on on Twitter, which is uh, uh, where, where I'll be until I'm banned or uh, <laughs> algorithmed out of existence, at Ali Abunima. And uh, my brilliant colleagues and I uh, publish uh, all our work related to Palestine and related to broader regional issues that we didn't even get to this time. Yeah. I mean, we, we scratched the surface. But we had to talk about the European problem. Yeah, it's a, there's so much solve, more. <laughs> we have to solve the European problem. But uh, you can find us at uh, electronicintifada.net. But we're also on, we have a fantastic podcast that is hosted. It's on YouTube by my colleagues, Nora Barrows-Friedman and Asa Winstanley. Great discussions. Uh, you mentioned Katie Halper. We have an upcoming episode with a Katie Ooh. Halper that we talk about some of the censorship around Palestine, as you, of course, know, because you um, uh, broke the story with Katie about her being fired by the Hill. It's crazy. Uh, and so she came on with us to talk about that and the broader issue of censorship about Palestine. Uh, so electronicintifada.net and... We're on all the social media. And we'll, I'll, link, the, I'll link to the yeah. Electronic Antifada YouTube because it's actually a video podcast. It is, but it's also yeah. on SoundCloud and Apple and all, all those kinds of things. So you could, you, you know, if, if you can't find us, you're not trying. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> well, Ali, thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to doing this again relatively soon. Likewise. Thank you so much, Rania. <laughs>